I want to begin by saying that I, I feel for all of you who are in university, starting or even the middle of your career, or even worse, you're out there looking for a job right now. You know, it wasn't long ago that education paved your way to a great job and hard work to a great career. It's this natural progression. It also led you to move to where the jobs are. And the less you move within a job, the more you're rewarded and acknowledged for your loyalty. And you competed to keep that job and for promotions with the person down the hall. Today, almost all we know about careers and paths are being rendered obsolete by the digital transformation. Companies throughout the country are talking about the need for automation. Nearly one in five Canadians have a job that is at high risk of automation. Machines are gonna be replacing these individuals. It's allowed the robots to take over. Canadian companies, they know they have to innovate. They know they have to automate. The future of your work is not guaranteed or certain, and it certainly will be disrupted. For those who can run on shifting sand, there'll be no limit to where you can go, grow, or work. The sands of change will in fact become your castle. But for the others, the shifting sand is going to collapse under your feet. And that's the harsh reality of these times. Today on Chatter That Matters, my guest is Steve Cadigan. He's here to tell you how to build your career castle. Steve is one of the foremost experts on the future of work, and he's renowned for leading LinkedIn's talent push from 400 to 4,000 in three and a half years, and being responsible for architecting its world-famous company culture. And what he has to say about the future of work and your work is up next. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Steve Cadigan, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Oh, thanks for having me. Steve, you just wrote a powerful book on the future of work called Workquake and what people can expect in the coming years and what they need to do. I want you to begin by reading the introduction to that book. The future has never been more uncertain for both employers and employees. They face the same profoundly unsettling dilemma. Neither knows what skills they need to develop for the future. Futurists and the media tell us that over 50% of the jobs today will soon be replaced by automation and artificial intelligence. Turnover is higher than it's ever been. The percentage of the workforce that's actively disengaged has never been higher. The shelf life of skills today is diminishing rapidly. Longstanding industries and industry leaders are being disrupted. These staggering changes are challenging our concepts of what a career really looks like today and how we should build organizations going forward. We are facing a workquake. It's time we change the conversation. It's time to talk about how being human has never been more critical and how we have more agency in applying our talents than at any other time in history. We need to have more real and honest conversations about how to build a better model of the future of work, one in which both employers and employees feel safe and energized. Steve, I set it up that you're one of the world-renowned thinkers, and I think to to establish that as, as fact versus conjecture, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about your background. And you can go back as early as Cisco if you want. Okay. Well, I've been in the, the talent field for my whole career. I worked in about six different industries, fashion, wholesale, insurance, semiconductor. I got to Cisco in in the mid 90s when it was one of the most valuable companies in the world and growing super fast. I did a ton of M&A work, merger and acquisition integration, which is high velocity change. And I fell in love with that kind of work, helping organizations and teams and individuals go through rapid craziness (laughs) and try to build value from those environments. When the dot-com bubble burst back in 2001, 
my job disappeared and I was asked to go to Singapore for a couple of years. After two years there, I had an opportunity to go to Canada and I was offered my first head of human resources role for a small semiconductor company in beautiful British Columbia. So I lived in Vancouver for four years, relocated back to the US in 2008 with Electronic Arts. In 2009, I was recruited by LinkedIn to be their first head of human resources. And for me, uh, Tony, that was a massive change because it was the first time I was moving from a big company to a private pre-IPO high-tech startup, if you will, and having a chance to apply my craft in a different way. In big companies, you tend to tune and adjust and, and try to make more modern things that were made before you. And in a startup, you're building something from nothing. It's like walking into soft clay. And I thought, well, how hard can that be? Turned out to be incredibly hard if you've never done it before. But it was also very uh, inspiring to be able to build something, take all the lessons you've learned from prior experiences, things you see didn't work, things that you know if you build them a certain way will have the wrong outcomes and, and try to build something the way you want to. And that was such a great, scary, exciting opportunity that I had to help build the organization. I was responsible in the four years I was at LinkedIn from helping the company grow from 400 to 4,000, two offices to 26 and two countries to 17. So before we, I want to spend some time on LinkedIn, but I want to take back to a point you made when you were talking about involved in mergers and acquisitions and high velocity change. When that change happens, it hits and it hurts. How do you manage that for a company so that coming out of it, people can reclaim a sense of culture and identity with a company, even if they lost theirs in the merger or in turn, it's a completely different landscape. The lessons I learned from that are honesty, integrity, trying to build trust. Those are how you got to approach that. You got to tell the bad news first. We're going to have to reduce the staff by X percent. This is the date we're going to let you know. And these are the, going to be the terms of your release. We're going to be able to provide you this amount of you know, severance or payouts or whatever that is. So you need to answer Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Who's in? Who's out? What big changes are you going to make? And when are you going to make them? And if you don't know when a decision is going to be made, you got to be clear on that. But that's what you're striving for when you're trying to integrate a company is you're trying to build trust. At first, it could be rejection, anger, denial, uh, apprehension. And then you sort of try to work through your communication plan, answering all the tough questions so that you get at least a little bit of understanding and then acquiescence. And then you move towards uh, integration and getting people to, to perform again. And that's what I looked as my role as the people, people guy in integration. I need to deliver this team inside my company so that they're creating more value as fast as I can. Uh, and we found speed does help because the faster you go, the less time people have to say, hey, I don't really like this bus that I'm on. Hard times and difficult times are the best times to build loyalty. Your challenge as a leader, and if you can make those hard decisions and you can be honest and open about it, I think people will respect you more, even when some of your answers are not what they want to hear. You're the son of a minister and a social worker, and the degree you got was history. Did a lot of that become part of your knapsack going forward as you started dealing with people and, and how they feel about the company they work for? You know, that's an interesting question. I've never been asked that. I think yes, I think so. My uh, parents were rebels. They were protesters. They did not accept the traditional order of things. And they took us to South Africa, my sister and I, when I was two. We lived there for five years and we would have probably still been there if we hadn't been kicked out. But they really wanted to create a better world. And I think that seeped into my DNA and seeped into my veins. But yeah, 
if you ask my parents, you know, I'm probably the one that got away. Like, what, where did we go wrong? You know, he's working in business, but I, I know they're super proud and I'm super proud of the values they, they imbued in me. But yeah, my dad moved from the ministry into education on the second half of his career journey and combined the two. He's a chaplain of a private school and then became the headmaster, you know, watching him communicate, making hard decisions, just fascinating to me. Do you think they've seen you now move from capitalist, which you said the one that got away to now being much more of a, a teacher and the work you're doing with speaking around the world and the books you author? Yeah, I think so. I, I think over the years, we talk a lot about the the kinds of things I do. And I've actually had a chance with my dad when he moved to a new school, I would go in and do some uh, what I call new new leader uh, integration or new manager assimilation work with him. And he could see that we're doing the same work. We're really helping people find their way. Peter Senge is a big influence in my life. And he wrote a book called The Fifth Discipline, which talks about systems thinking. And I, I don't know, I've always had an affinity for looking at a system and, and acquisitions really helped me, I think, develop that, which is, you know, when you see behavior in a certain part of the organization, you could say, hey, that employee is acting out. And you can say, well, we need to discipline that employee. But if you take a systems approach, you look at it and go, well, that person's boss and that person's boss above that boss is acting the same way. So if I want to change that behavior, the employee is not the place where I want to do an intervention. I want to go higher. That level of intervention is going to help the downstream effect. I really like looking at things from that perspective. I don't know where that comes from, probably from sports, like seeing different interrelated parts and how they can all work together. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. This is Chat That Matters presented by RBC. When we come back, I asked Steve about this startup called LinkedIn that we are all connected to and how he was there and helping them grow from 400 to 4,000. You have so much more information now to make an informed decision about where to work than ever before. Similarly, companies know more about us than ever before, right? They can check us out. They can do backdoor references like never before. They could find people that used to work with us that we don't even know and talk to them. So why in an era where in theory we should be making the best choices of our career are so many people not happy at work? Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman continues. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. I'm chatting with Steve Cadigan. He's got a brand new book called Workquick. He's a frequent contributor to the conversation in major business magazines, business news programs, sought after speaker around the world for the future of work. And today we're talking about the future of your work. Steve, take us to those early days at LinkedIn because you referred to it earlier as a startup. Yet we think of LinkedIn today like a Facebook or a Google. It's just big and it's out there. So take us back to those early days when you were creating the culture. And by the way, I want to point out Jonathan Lister. I don't know if you remember Jonathan, but I asked him about you. Of course I know Jonathan. Yes. And he said, you were incredible and instrumental in giving us a competitive advantage with our culture. He spoke glowingly about you. So take us back to those early days and how you deserve those glowing remarks. Well, I got to tell you what, I mean, I was really in a new ocean, uh, trying to create something I'd never done before. And I'd never faced this notion. And the, the glue that I think held us together that allowed us to really grow well uh, was the fact that I had a lot of big company refugees that were, we were all assembled as, as, a, as a leadership team. We had uh, ex-Google, I had ex-Yahoo, ex-Adobe, ex-Oracle, ex-Apple. What most of us brought to the table was how we didn't want to grow the company. I think the, the biggest challenge, ironically, for us in the early days was uh, recruiting. 
that was our biggest product, but it was also the biggest challenge for us because we were trying to build a company in Silicon Valley, which at the time then and is still today, it's a career candy store. People have infinite choice and possibility and you can get counter offers and walk across the street and raise your pay 50%. It's not uncommon for that to happen. And so when you are building a company and don't have a brand and don't have the same cachet and you don't have the fancy buildings and the beautiful benefits and parks and so forth, it really forces you to get creative. That was the biggest forcing function for us to stumble upon. And I can say this with full honesty and any executive at LinkedIn will tell you the same story that was at the table with me. Our goal was to build the company as fast as we could. We were terrified that Google was going to outflank us. What a lot of people didn't know was that 90% of the traffic to LinkedIn came from a Google search. So if Google wanted to build a hiring solution, (laughs) they could direct traffic somewhere else and no one was going to come to LinkedIn. We needed to build our value and our moat fast. And so speed of recruiting was important. Google was making more money in a day than we were making in a year. And so how do you distinguish yourself? How do you become a employer of choice? Was be- we, we found was by becoming a place where the best people wanted to be. And so we, we discovered through lots of struggle and through analyzing lots of Turner um, offer rejections and people who are leaving that what we could control at no expense was creating a great culture. And that meant that this was going to be the best place that you would ever work. You might not make as much as you could in some of these other places, but we were going to guarantee that you're going to make the biggest impact, learn the most and have the biggest difference in the world. And also that the mission we were trying to help solve, the problem we're trying to help solve is helping people find their dream jobs far more aspirational, we felt, than what Google was doing or Apple or Facebook or any of the other choices that people had. And so that forcing function really forced us to innovate we realized that culture was the only thing that we could invest in that was really could make us different and that the problem we're solving mattered. Steve, I just got a question though. I have like a tangible as I can see an offer and I can see what my income's going to be, my benefits, my shares if they're offering it to me. You're talking about intangibles, higher purpose, saving the planet. You're going to enjoy things more. How do you animate intangibles so that people value them the same way they can value something pragmatic like this is how much I'm going to make? Well, I think that's a, that's a great question. And I think the, the way you start to do that is you really get to know the individual first. And I think this is something really relevant to today's discussion for businesses where they're having to sell a different proposition, a different kind of work and a different culture. What we got super clear on is that most companies will sell you on why you should enjoy their journey and why you should join their journey. And we flipped the script and said, what's your journey? And we want to make sure that your time here carries you on the journey. So for example, we would start interviews by saying, okay, we both know that someday you're going to leave the company. Where do you want to be when you leave the organization? It became very personal. That I think distinguished us from all these other conversations where people were selling things that are a little bit less you know, a little bit, maybe more tangible in some ways, but a little more hollow, you know, money, title, prestige. Oh, you can have Google on your business card. For example, we were trying to say, Hey, let's solve a problem that matters. Let's make the world better for you and your children. Cause that's something that gets you excited. Where do you want to be? What do you want to do? And we think in, in some cases, if we thought it was true, we think we can help uh, deliver on where you want to go. And so it's listening, a lot of listening and interviewing and trying to understand where so, what someone wants and where they want to go. And if they don't, help them understand what could be possible for them in the organization. If you're listening to this, listen generously because Steve just gave you some compelling advice, whether you're going for a job or you're trying to recruit someone. Become part of their story, understand their journey, their quest. 
You're an organization that helps an individual get to where they want to go, even for a year, two years, or three years. One, you're serving a higher purpose, but two, you're going to attract a much better individual. Steve, you wrote a Wall Street Journal article recently saying a record number of people are quitting their jobs. Why is that? I think the pandemic has, well, first, before the pandemic, we're seeing a greater increase in the length of or, or the greater increase in how short people are staying in organizations. We're already seeing people stay less and less, particularly the younger demographic of 25 to 35. But what the pandemic's done, I believe, for all of us is is present a life-changing moment where we see the world differently. And I equate it to having your first child. Those of you our listeners who have uh, children will remember when you had your first child, how it changed where you want to be how you spend your time, who you want to spend your time with and what you want to do with your life. It's fundamental. It's profound. And I think that's what the pandemic did. It jolted us to see the world differently, how we spend our time, where we spend it, who we're spending it with. And that has, I think, accelerated the creation of different uh, choices that people want to make. I don't want to commute. I don't miss that. I want more freedom. I want to be able to shop in a grocery store when no one's there or get a haircut and not have to fight for an appointment. I want to have that freedom to manage my life differently. I'm not willing to give that up. And some of these organizations that are just blindly saying everyone come back because they are uncomfortable managing in a different way are going to really limit the pool of talent, I think, that's coming their way. But that, I mean, there's many factors, honestly, but the biggest one is this notion of that I believe everyone's sort of vertical value chain has shifted because of the pandemic. And the longer we've been in this, in this, the, the, the more we see differently uh, our world and, and some of our choices, and we're making different choices and we're seeing that play out. Do you think that that common denominator, how we're all seeing the world different is in fact going to open up our minds to the, the needs of different generations? Because before the pandemic, there's a lot, you know, well, that's the millennials, they don't want to work, or that's the boomers, they don't want to quit and give me a job. Do you think that now that we've all gone through this together, that we're going to have a much greater appreciation for things that we value versus simply how we're valued in terms of a paycheck? Yes, uh, very much so. And I believe the fact, ask anyone or think about who are the closest friends that you have in your life? They're probably someone you went through some hard times with. They saw you at your weakest. You saw them at their weakest. You saw them at their high points. They saw you similarly. We've now all gone through something together that's very bonding and grounding. And I think it's ground down sort of the generational uh, differences that maybe people were paying more attention to. I am not a big fan of categorizing people into generational categories. I think it can, it can be helpful, but I think the workforce as a whole is seeing things differently. And what happened before the pandemic, and I talk about this in Workquake a lot is what, what, the, the people who are saying, oh, this is the millennials, Gen Z, short attention span, career sugar high, shopping for promotion, disloyal. You know, what they're reacting to is a reality that this generation has more visibility to choice than ever before. They can see how companies are paying. They can see what their leadership style is like. They can see what the culture is like. They can see the benefits, the perk. They can hear about the experiences. And 40 years ago, the executives who were running a lot of these organizations didn't have that. They didn't have the, the opportunity to see that choice. So I'm saying, don't look at it as a generational mindset. Look at it as there's a new platform of visibility that people are acting on, just as you would 40 years ago if you could see what they could see today. Hi, this is Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chat at the Matters presented by RBC. Chatting with Steve Cadigan, a world-renowned thought leader in the future of work. And speaking of the future of the work, 
He thinks it's the worst marketing campaign in the history of the world because it's steeped in fear. We come back, I think he's going to raise some of those fears. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. I'd like to give a big shout out to RBC's Future Launch, a $500 million decade-long commitment to help prepare 3 million youth for the future of work. And how? Providing young people access to meaningful employment through work experience, skills development opportunities, networking solutions, and mental well-being support and services. Powering today's youth for the jobs of tomorrow, that matters to RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. My special guest today is Steve Cadigan. He's uh, world-renowned. He took LinkedIn from 400 to 4,000. He speaks all over the world about the future of work. Today, we're talking about the future of your work. Let's talk a little bit about why you think fear is not the way to raise people's spirits in terms of the future of work. As human beings, I think we have two instincts uh, related to surviving. Um, and, you know, we, we look at every situation. Is this a threat or is this something that's safe? And the way that the future of work has been marketed has been more around run for the hills. The robots, AI, uh, automation is going to replace you. Half the jobs in the next 10 years don't even exist today. We have documented rising cases of fear, anxiety, depression, not just in the, in the workforce, but also in uh, school-aged children. The pace of change is exceeding, honestly, our brain's ability to absorb it. So what I feel is the trap that many of us are falling into, and I'm as guilty as the next person, is trying to look for a shortcut, trying to look for a way to stay current and assuming more technology is the answer to that. And so what I think we've done wrong is we've started the conversation with, wow, look at this new sexy new technology. It's a digital transformation we need to go through as an organization instead of saying, Hey, if I told you that I've got some technology that can make your job more interesting, you can make a greater impact. You could do stuff that's more meaningful that can make more change. Would you be interested? We don't have that conversation. We start with, Hey, there's new technology. There's new digital transformation. All our consultants that we paid all this money to tell us it's the right thing to do. So we're going to do it. And what the employee hears, blah, 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 blah. I'm going to lose my job. Just using the words digital transformation, you're already starting off the wrong foot. When I hear that, and this is the number one thing that most organizations are focused on right now is digital transformation. And it's the biggest revenue stream from any. Uh, consulting company on the planet right now, helping companies digitally transform. But those two words do not conjure images of beauty, love, humanness. They conjure images of cold, steel, robotic, inhuman. And that is putting people on the defensive. And I think we need to come up with a new language that's more inviting. And that's the big inspiration around why I wrote my book. So I read Work Quick. It's a brilliant book. I encourage people to search it out. You write three chapters are really dedicated to compelling advice for employees and the other three are for employers. And beyond that, there's some other great value added, but we're going to focus on employees. One of your first chapters, I think it is your first, is it's time to be more human. What are you hoping people will get when they read that chapter? I'm hoping that they're going to gain the confidence and appreciation that what we've traditionally called soft skills have been misnamed and misclassified. We should call them power skills. These are skills that robots technology cannot do. Human connection, empathy, compassion, teamwork, uh, respect, communication. 
this is the one thing that I, f- uh, I fear significantly is being put aside by a lot of organizations and people is, you know, as we rely on more technology to sort of shorthand communication or text people instead of having real unstructured conversations where we build trust. And trust, by the way, is the biggest factor that every researcher will tell you drives greater organization performance. The future is not about learning some new technical hard skill. We can all learn that stuff. What's going to really differentiate you, what's going to allow you to have more control and more impact is the ability for you to double down on your human traits that technology just cannot serve. And that's why I think it's a, it was a great place to start uh, the conversation. Because I've heard my whole life from people, I could never be an entrepreneur like you. But you raise a compelling point saying that there's an entrepreneur inside all of us. What brought you to that conclusion? That's another myth that I wanted to bust that an entrepreneur is kind of a certain kind of anvil. There are elements of entrepreneurs that not all of us have, like, you know, ability to take a lot of risk. But I think taking control is a very entrepreneurial. And I have dozens of stories here of people who did that, who unexpectedly found themselves in an entrepreneurial role. And they didn't strive to, oh, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. They didn't go to entrepreneur school. They didn't surround themselves with entrepreneurs, but they looked to try to solve something that mattered to them, something meaningful. And all of a sudden they realized, you know, wow, I'm creating value in a new way. Don't just discount that. Don't just think and, and that other people are that and that you're not because there may be pieces of it that you're uncomfortable with. I think there's so much opportunity right now for people to unleash their talents in ways that they've never been able to do before. In the next chapter, you challenge us to have a learning mindset, not to be a Homer Simpson. <laughs> and this is something that I'm very attached to because I think the entire education system needs to be Ubered, that we're just not putting our kids front and center in the whole program. And you even talk about student loans debt in the US now stands at 1.5 trillion. So how do we have this learning mindset? How do we have it for life? But at the same time, set us up for success through our entire formative years when school is all we do. Well, gosh, that's a, that's a big, 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 big problem that I think the world faces right now. And I think we have to be careful not to just point fingers at uh, institutions and, and universities. I spend a lot of time with a lot of universities around the world. And the first thing I ask them is, so what, what are you building and why are you building what you're building? Like, what are you teaching and what's important and what's informing why you should teach what you teach? And they say, well, we want to deliver really productive people into society. And when we, when we go talk to organizations and businesses, they don't really know what they want us to build. <laughs> we should stop looking at schools like elementary school as a place to get into a good high school and as high school as a place to get into a good college and as a good college to get in a place to get a good job. And we should look at this more from we are going to be learning the entirety of our lives because the shelf life value of hard skills today is shorter than it's ever been, which means we're always going to need to be learning. So let's prepare people with the capacity to learn. Let's set up environments and organizations and schools where people are learning peer to peer, small groups, large groups together working in different ways so that that mirrors the myriad of different ways that you interact with people in an organization when you're out there in the quote, uh, real world. The great news is we're starting to see that, you know, shape in lots of different ways. We also, as individuals in society have to appreciate there's a heck of a lot of learning that happens at home, not just in the school. You know, this is not just a academic exercise. Just going to remind everybody, there's chapters for employers and employees. So I'm focusing on the employees in this episode, but I hope to get Steve back on another one. But your third chapter, you talk about strategies for all of us. You talk about dynamically managing career, but at the same time, you also challenge to make sure we get a life. 
Well, this is sort of a an interesting conversation to have because when I wrote that chapter, it was before the pandemic. And the pandemic I've referred to as the hostile takeover of work and uh, sort of the hostile merger, if you will, of, of work and home. The pandemic has served, I think, the greatest opportunity in our lifetimes for us to be able to realize this. I speak to many business schools around the world and I, and I tell the students, I know why you're here because you believe that being here is going to serve you to realize greater business success and you probably want financial security so that you can have a better life. Don't lose sight of the fact that we're here not to finish first. We're here to finish fulfilled and to finish happy. And many, many, many executives who have passed away in their later hours in life will say, well, you know, I wish I'd spent more time uh, building relationships and building friendship. And similarly, a lot of the research shows that fulfillment in life comes from a greater network of friends and greater network of people that you really care and trust than some sort of career ladder that, that you've realized. So I'm, I, what I'm trying to do in this chapter is reframe, you know, this exhaustive search that a lot of people have, like, I got to go do this. I got to go do this and lose sight of the fact that there's a bigger world that we want to be mindful of. As we start making these choices, you also offer a lot of advice for employers. How would you summarize what people would find in, in WorkQuake on that area? Well, for us to have a better model of working, I believe that employers and employees both need to contribute to the conversation. What I want employers to understand is the notion of what a career means, the notion of our relationship to work is fundamentally changing. And so, how you recruit, how you engage, how you apply, how you create value from your workforce needs to shift significantly help the employers understand the new psychology of workers. The psychology of workers has shifted from job security used to be being stationary, being in one place and being consistent and and loyal to one organization. And that has now fundamentally shifted and is going to continue to shift to job security and job safety is movement. The more I move, the more people I meet, the bigger my network becomes, the more I know, the more valuable I become for an uncertain future. And what people are increasingly looking for is not a promise of a job and not a promise that they won't be let go, but a promise that they will be employable. So employers, your mission is not to make a promise to keep people or that you won't fire them or let them go. Your promise should be that you will make them better for the future. You can't promise your industry won't get disrupted or the pandemic won't shut you down. But if you promise you'll make people better for tomorrow, I think you're going to attract better people. And I think people are going to want to stay with you long. Tony Chapman, you're listening to Chatter That Matters presented by RBC. When we come back, I rapid fire questions at Steve Cadding about your future work and some of his answers I know will surprise you. People over 50 stay 10 years. What do you think the number is going to be when I show you in a second 25 to 35? 2.8 years. What? You're leaving? We just finished your orientation. You got a choice. Am I going to try to keep these people longer? Or am I just going to accept that, you know what? Maybe they're going to leave and I need to build a new model. I need to think differently about my talent pool. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters, my special guest, Steve Cadigan. Steve, I want to ask you a series of what I call rapid fire questions because I dug deep and I read so many articles and saw so many interviews and you have so much to offer. First thing I want to ask you is from one of your interviews, you talk about the importance of collaborating or die. 
Things are changing so fast. There's too much information for all of us to absorb. The more people you know, the more people you have to draw from to help you answer the inevitable brain teaser new situation that's going to confront you. So that's why it's super important. You wrote an article saying, forget going back to the office. People are just quitting instead. Why is that? People have found they cherish the freedom and the independence and the autonomy to manage their day more than what they get being in an office. And they are very reluctant to give that up. In this article, I love the advice you gave on how to get the raise you deserve. Compensation includes so many things. It's not just money. A lot of times if you're asking for more money, it's because something's out of balance in your relationship with your job. You don't like your boss. You don't like the work you're doing. You don't like the hours you're doing. You don't like the commute that you're having. Ask yourself, what am I really trying to solve for here? Maybe it's more time off. Maybe it's not just money. Maybe it's more independence. Maybe it's a different kind of role. It's really the dollar. It's someone maybe doesn't feel respected or someone doesn't feel valued from their team. So you talk about hybrid working is going to be tricky. I think a lot of people are coming to terms with whether I'm going to go back, what's the environment going to be like. So what are your thoughts? Give grace to your employer. There is no master's degree in managing remote workers. There is no master's degree in, hey, everyone's going to be in person and the next day they're going to be at home. And how should that work? So give grace. Your organization's trying to figure it out and they're scared and they are facing a very uncertain future. And be active. Try to frame uh, suggestions uh, for them that may work for you. There are about a thousand different iterations of what hybrid can look like. What days of the week? How long? What hours? Who's going to be in hybrid the same days that other people are going to be in hybrid? So it really necessitates a mindset of experimentation as we go through this, you know, iteration and learning what kind of hybrid may work and might not work. And different teams and different businesses in the same organization may need to try and have different parts that are doing different things. As a society, we're starting to really have to come to terms with backlash. What are your three rules for handling employee backlash? The best way to prepare yourself for that is to build a big bank of trust and respect. You want your leaders to be more present, more available. You want to have lots of town halls. You want to have lots of opportunities for them to participate in surveys, anonymous feedback, real-time feedback with every team in the company. What's working well? What can we do better? In this crazy world that we're in, the way you avoid that backlash is to build equity and, and bank and listen. That you listened, they were heard. I read a Forbes article where you offered advice on how we can future-proof our career in a digital economy. One is always be looking. And that's not disloyal. You're always going to be in a place that's going to go through change. So the more you look and the more you're open to possibilities, you're not going to be on your heels if something happens or changes, that's out of your control. That's number one. Number two, network, network, network. Continue to meet regularly with people that you care about to help them and asking for help from people that you know. And the third one is just always always be curious and, 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 and wanting to learn, having that growth mindset that we talked about earlier. So Steve, as we air this radio show and podcast, Workquake is being released. How do my listeners get a copy or learn more about what you do. Workquake's available everywhere now. It's an available in every format. We're actually getting it translated into Spanish as we speak. So it'll be available for people who want to read it in Spanish, but uh, Audible, digital, uh, hard copy, any bookseller, any book distributor. If you want to go to stevecadigan.com and get on my mailing list that we can keep you updated. Or if you have any questions, you can find me on LinkedIn uh, and I'm happy to uh, steer you in the, in the right direction, but it should be available everywhere. It's Tony Chapman. You've been listening to Chatter That Matters with Steve Cadigan. I always end with the three things I learned from, from my uh, interview. The first is, and it's the title of one of his chapters, it's time to be more human. Listening generously and, and, and understanding what 
matters to the person in front of you and how you can help them get to where you want to go. And I think that act of servitude and humility, not making about you, but making about them is something that will take you in so many wonderful paths in life. The second thing is this idea that if you employ someone, your job is to make them more employable coming in almost like a guest to your hotel and when they leave give them some gifts in their knapsack that they can take to be better for who they are and why they matter and the final thing is this is a time of disruption it's a time of uncertainty it's a time of change but if you approach it thinking about it as possibilities versus impossibilities and realize that there is opportunities out there if you realize that as a human race what we have is something that ai will never have which is a heart i think your career will beat a long way Steve Cadigan, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I know how busy you are doing interviews around this book to have you on Chat of the Matters. Super great conversation and some of the best questions I've been asked. So thank you for having me. And I hope that I can come back and talk about the second half sometime in the future. Joining me now is John Stackhouse, Senior VP, Office of the President, RBC, and host of one of Canada's most popular podcasts, Disruptors. John, welcome back to Chatter That Matters. Always great to talk with you, uh, Tony. Your office has done a lot of work talking about what it will take to prepare Canadians for this future of disruption. And I thought maybe you could share some of the highlights of your study. We did a big report a few years ago called Humans Wanted, which explained and really showed using data analysis how human skills, communication, collaboration, critical thinking were the power skills of the future. And we've seen through the pandemic an acceleration of that, even though we've all been working digitally, remotely, uh, having to figure out new platforms like Zoom. It's those old human skills of being able to work with other humans and come up with ideas, develop ideas that is really defining successful organizations of every size in every sector. And we just published another report uh, as a follow-on to that on creativity which is maybe the most human skill. We are a creative species. One of the things that I I thought was really cool in the report was how we found creativity to be an important and even essential skill in pretty much every sector. What advice would you give to my listeners on how they can sharpen their creative skills or even if their parents encourage their children to, to make sure that they continue to open their mind to possibilities and abstract thinking versus just being very pragmatic? Number one, you are creative. If you're an engineer or a farmer, you are drawing on creative skills every hour of the day. So don't undervalue that and don't let others undervalue it. And then secondly, no matter what you're doing, uh, understand that creativity is a team sport. Uh, It involves collaboration and collaboration with very different types. What's your thoughts on the sense of a liberal arts education? I know in the past some people have said it's a waste of time, but it sounds like from some of the work that you're doing that opening your mind to philosophy and psychology is as important as even STEM subjects. Absolutely. And I think the STEM fields, they're they're now calling themselves STEAM, putting the uh, A for arts in uh, in there with science, technology, uh, engineering and math. They understand that those kind of lateral skills, those creative skills, those human skills are essential to the digital future uh, because we increasingly have robots and algorithms that are good at all sorts of things, but they're not gonna replace those human skills, that creativity 
ensure if you're studying, if you're going to school or advising someone, dive into the arts. If you can connect that with digital skills, you're going to own the future. What's next for John Stackhouse? I'm spending a lot of time uh, seriously on climate issues right now and trying to actually think a bit more creatively and how Canadians as a pretty collaborative group in a big cold country that produces a lot of energy and uses a lot of energy, how we can build the energy systems of the future that make the world more sustainable. John Stackhouse, never one to uh, tackle small problems. I appreciate you once again uh, finding the time to come on Chatter That Matters. Always great to be with you, Tony. Thank you. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.